something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. Well, how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi. I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Lance here. For the last few episodes, we've been hearing all about Sergei Krikalev, the Soviet space program, the space race, Russia's messy transition to capitalism, you know, heavy stuff. But now we're going to take a slight detour from all of that and talk about me, Lance Vass. Are you ready? All right. Y'all already know how I became obsessed with space as a kid after I saw a rocket launch at Cape Canaveral and how from that moment, I dreamt that one day I'd put on a spacesuit, squeeze into a teeny tiny shuttle, pee in a funnel, and blast off into the unknown. But what you don't know is some of the crazy things that happened on my trip. Like meeting Buzz freaking Aldrin in a bar in Moscow. <laughs> yeah. So on this episode of The Last Soviet, I sit down with one of my producers, Asya Fuchs, to talk about how my dream of going to space came true. Well, almost. From Kaleidoscope, iHeart, and Exile content, this is The Last Soviet. We start in the spring of 2002. NSYNC was about to go on a six-month hiatus. I needed that break. But also it was like, six months? What the hell am I going to do? Relax poolside with a margarita? Well, an American TV network had other plans for me. They were putting together a reality TV show where contestants would compete for a spot on a Russian Soyuz space rocket to the International Space Station. And they were looking for a host. But they wanted that host to go to space, too. And then one day, the producer was sitting at home with a friend discussing where the hell they could find a celebrity interested in space, when suddenly his friend's nine-year-old says, Lance Bass wants to go to space. Turns out, she was a huge NSYNC fan. Followed all the interviews we used to do on AOL chat rooms. Remember those? Yeah, I'm that old. Anyway, it was because of that nine-year-old that one sunny day in Florida, I get that fateful phone call from my manager. Hey. 
And then that's when the phone call happened. And I remember I was in my house in Orlando. Cindy calls and says, hey, I have a question. Would you like to go to space? <laughs> I'm like, what? Okay. And uh, she's like, no, seriously, we got a call and they want you to be the youngest person to go to space. And my first thought was, all right, Cindy, this is a joke because Punked was such a huge show at the time with Ashton Kutcher. Okay, here's what's going to happen. We're going to do something, a celebrity's going to get pissed, and then we're going to laugh at them. I'm like, Ashton is punking me. This is a total punk, but I'm not going to bite. And so, yeah, that was the end of the conversation for a few days until Cindy called back again, and she's like, so this is legit. This is definitely not Ashton Kutcher. This is definitely not a prank. And uh, that's when it just hit me that, wow, am I really going to have this opportunity, an opportunity that I dreamt of? My whole entire life, my first love, my first passion, and it just took off from there. I mean, once you realize this is the real deal, you're not being punked, Ashton Kutcher is not involved, <laughs> like what's going through your head when you realize you might actually get to live out this thing that you'd been dreaming of since you were a little kid? I mean, the thing that was going through my head was, you know, it, it's just, it didn't seem real. It was definitely surreal. I called my parents first because I just had to tell them. They knew my passion. And I also knew that my mom was going to be so against it <laughs> because, you know, sending your son to space is not the best thing for a parent, I think. It's very dangerous <laughs> and scary. So I think her first reaction was like, no, you're, you're not doing this. But just kind of like when I joined NSYNC, there was no stopping it. And the other thought going through my head was, wow, am I really going to be able to live out two of my dreams, my two biggest dreams in the world, music and space? And how am I lucky enough to be able to do both of those weird, very opposite things? There was no thought that I was going to turn this down at all. And I was just so excited. And I remember, you know, going back on tour just a couple of days later and telling the guys. And I mean, it was, I was like, you know, a kid on Christmas morning, <laughs> just so excited. And they were so confused, like, what? Like, they couldn't even be happy for me because they were just so confused on what was going on. Everything starts slowly coming together, the plans for your great space adventure. You've now told your family, you've told the NSYNC boys, it's time to get into gear. Yeah. And the plan is this. You're going to spend six months of intensive cosmonaut training in Russia and then jet off to space in October 2002. But before all that, you need to pass these very stringent medical tests in Russia. Right. And it turns out there's something wrong with your heart. Yeah, before you go into training, everyone has to go through, you know, medical, and it's where they study you for a good week. So I had my dad with me and a bodyguard with me the whole time I was there, but they research everything about you. Every little inch of your body is studied, mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, everything. So, I mean, you're sitting there completely naked in front of like eight doctors standing on a table as they're like poking you and <laughs> putting fingers where they shouldn't be putting fingers. And they just wanted to make sure that you're as healthy as possible because going to space is, you know, quite dangerous and it's a different way of living. So one of the criteria for a cosmonaut is you have to have a regular heartbeat. And for some reason, I had an irregular heartbeat. I knew I had an irregular heartbeat. I had been diagnosed with that a few years earlier, but was completely benign. But that was the one thing that I did not pass. So I failed my first medical and it was because of the irregular heartbeat. And I was disappointed because I'm like, really, this is what's going to stop my dream of going to space is an irregular benign heartbeat. And so we found this doctor in Boston 
that wanted to do an ablation surgery and said he thinks that he could fix this and see where it's misfiring. An ablation surgery? What? What is that? It's where they send uh, basically these rods up your arteries, about five of them, through your groin, and it goes up to your heart. Whoa. You're awake during the whole thing. So there's all these television screens around your head, and you're seeing the little cameras inside you and, and seeing where everything is kind of trying to misfire. They're studying it for, I felt like, hours. I'm listening to Harry Potter book on tape. <laughs> I guess it was on CD then. <laughs> Good distraction. Yes, it was the first time I, I had listened to a book before, and it was Harry Potter. So I was listening to that for quite a few hours. And then when they find the spot where it is misfiring, they will burn it. It feels like a match, like being put out on your heart. <laughs> it hurt like hell. But, you know, in the end, it worked. And now, to, to this day, I have a regular heartbeat. So... Going to space or not, I'm kind of glad I did it. You go through the surgery. It's, you know, it's quite an ordeal. NSYNC finally goes on its six-month hiatus, and you fly into Russia, you fly into Moscow, and you get to Star City. What are your first impressions of the place? Um, well, when I fly into Moscow, it was just an overwhelming feeling because you see all the things that you've studied in history books and all these gorgeous pictures of Moscow. It was It was beautiful. So, you know, I was a good tourist for a good 12 hours when I first landed there. Of course, the first thing I tried doing was going to McDonald's because I heard the McDonald's was like the crazy thing <laughs> in Moscow. <laughs> and of course, like, stupid Americans like, I want to see this McDonald's, which I did. So that was a fun sightseeing experience. What did you think of it? I mean, it was exactly what they said. Completely packed, huge. I mean, people were fighting over McDonald's. It was a, it's a big thing. And then, of course, seeing the Kremlin and all that, I mean, it's just, you know, just history right in front of you. I did do St. Petersburg for a weekend, and it's gorgeous, but the places that I did see outside of those cities could not be more opposite of what those main cities were like. It's a completely different country. The wealth distribution is just insane. And then you go to Star City, and first time I pulled up to Zdonogorodok is... Very intimidating. The the gates, the walls in the middle of a forest. You've been driving for, uh, it's, it felt like hours, to this just middle of nowhere place that looks like it is literally from the 60s. And the first thing I, I notice is how many guns. I mean, so many military, they always just, you know, have their guns out, feeling like they're going to just point it at you at any second. And then you get into the first gates and you just see this amazing city that you feel like this is exactly what Gagarin saw, right? Mm. I mean, this is exactly the buildings he saw. This is exactly where he walked. If you just, you know, took pictures, you would never know what decade it was. So just stepping back in time was really interesting. And I just loved it. I thought it was just a beautiful feeling. Mm. So this all sounds really impressive. But what about you? Where did you fit into all of this? Tell me about where you were living. Oh, so yes, I was living in one of the cosmonaut profies, this uh, apartment complex. Again, had been there since the 60s. Chipped paint everywhere. Definitely wasn't kept up that great. There was no air conditioning. And when I got there, it was just the beginning of summer. You know, I'd always thought, oh, Russia is very cold. So I bet the summers are really nice. Oh, no, <laughs> it is hot as hell. And there was no air conditioning. And so you'd have to sleep with the windows open. But if you slept with the windows open, the mosquitoes would eat you alive. Mm. I mean, so many mosquitoes. So the first few nights I have to sleep with a little sheet over me, sweating my butt off and just hearing like little thumps of mosquitoes trying to get to me. 
And then I'd wake up in the morning and I would just see my whole wall was covered in blood because of all the little splats that I would, you know, try to kill all these mosquitoes. And it was miserable, absolutely miserable. It sounds like you weren't really given the star celebrity treatment, you know? Right. So you were training with the Russians, you were living with the Russians, and you were getting ready to fly on a Russian Soyuz capsule. Yeah. But as an American, NASA actually also had to approve your flight. And there were NASA reps you had to meet and impress. How did that go? Well, I mean, especially at the beginning, you know, NASA didn't want me there. You know, it was, you know, it was ridiculous. Oh, my gosh, you're going to get a pop star to come train to go to space. You know, that's a slap in so many astronauts' faces that have not flown or will never fly. So, you know, a lot of, you know, NASA definitely didn't want me there. They thought it was a, a bad look. And I remember the first time that I met with NASA officials right before I went into training, they wanted to meet with me to make sure that I had the goods, right, to to do this. And uh, so met with them. I thought it was a great meeting. And then I find out later that, you know, they thought I was like dumb as rocks. And they also thought that I was an alcoholic and drug addict what? because I was a quote unquote rock star. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, like, have you seen our group? We're pop stars. And uh, yeah, far from it. <laughs> Do you think there are any aspects of being a pop star, being a part of NSYNC that prepared you in any way for being an astronaut? I do. It's odd to say that being within sync and what I did and trained within sync, it really did help me with this space training. And I think that was started off with work ethic. You know, within sync, we spent hours and hours learning how to dance and sing at the same time, which took us months to figure that out, running on treadmills and trying to sing. So conditioning was a huge part of just being in sync. It was almost like a sport just because of the way that we performed. So when I went to Russia, I was already ready to work hard. You weren't going to see me not paying attention and being exactly what they thought I was going to be, this stupid little pop star that is an alcoholic, <laughs> and just too dumb to learn anything. You know, I was there to work and work hard. And then it wasn't until the very first week of training and all your tests are, are verbal tests and they rate you one to five and I forget even what the first classes were. I know there was a lot of math involved, <laughs> and I think it was the makeup of the Soyuz. I took it very seriously. It's amazing what you can get yourself to do when you're put in these situations, and especially if you're passionate about it. Yeah, and I feel like especially if you have this sort of motivation of someone saying you can't do it, uh -huh. you know, you want to prove them wrong. Oh, yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I was doing rocket science my first week there, <laughs> and I'm like, I'm going to prove you. I want to get to the training in just a minute, but before that, what was your sort of, what was your impression of the Russians that you met at Star City? Mm -hmm. What did you make of them? The Russians that I met in Star City, the first thing that I thought of is they're just proud, very proud people. They're so happy about what they have there and what they've developed since the 60s and all their accomplishments. I mean, they, they still talk about Gagarin in almost every sentence. Mm. That is their man. And I had heard of Gagarin, obviously, the first man in space. But as an American, you don't really get too in-depth with the Russian Space Agency and the whole Gagarin story because, you know, it's a little embarrassing that they beat our country. So <laughs> we have a little revised history sometimes when we study. Um, I got to learn so much about Gagarin those first couple of weeks, and I was super impressed and became a huge fan. And I felt that. I felt just as proud as they did. <laughs> but I loved it because they, you know— I would say 
probably half the Russian space agency didn't want me there either. I don't know if they thought it might be a bad look. It could be something you can make fun of and make the space program look a little less than that they're allowing me to do this. But they never really showed that to me. They treated me like a cosmonaut. You know, once you're in cosmonaut training, you're a cosmonaut. And they respect cosmonauts so much. And you felt special. You felt very, very special. I mean, the guy who made my spacesuit made Gagarin's spacesuit. I mean, it, it was just amazing that the same exact people that worked with Gagarin are working with me this many decades later. What was a typical day in Star City like? Sort of talk me through your day from the moment you wake up. I mean, every day in Star City, it wasn't typical. The only thing typical was you knew you were up at 5 in the morning and you would get back to your apartment by 10 p.m. So the days were super long. And you would have, at the beginning of the week, you would get your schedule. And it always changed. And, of course, it was all in Russian. So I'd have to, like, figure out what exactly this it says. <laughs> because my, my Russian teacher only spoke French and Russian, <laughs> zero English. And they thought just immersing myself in that would make me learn Russian a lot easier but it's not – with zero reference, I had no idea what was going on. So I knew how to conjugate everything in Russian, but I didn't even know what the word meant. So I had to start learning Russian on my own by watching, you know, the local Sesame Street cartoons and that type of stuff. So, yeah, so, yeah, I could conjugate and I could read it, but I didn't know what I was saying. But thanks to Sesame Street, I knew the certain words. And mainly the things I needed to learn were just emergency words, like there's a fire, you know, things like that. I mean, it was tough. The language was definitely tough. Um, did you eat a lot of Russian food while you were over there? I was forced to eat a lot of, of <laughs> Russian food. I have a very stupid palate, I would say, especially 20 years ago. There's many things I wouldn't eat, even cucumbers. Like that's how bland my taste buds were. That was the first time I had cucumbers, and they love cucumbers over in Russia. <laughs> they do? Yeah. And so it was the only thing I could eat and actually enjoy and know what it was. They like their shish kebabs for sure, so that was nice. But they always made me eat this soup, and it was horrible. I don't know what kind of soup it was, but that was the one thing at lunch. They were always, like, forcing me to finish. <laughs> so that was always strange to me. Yeah. <laughs> We get into this a bit in some of the other episodes, but I would love to hear more about some of the actual training that you went through. So tell me about survival training. What is that? I feel like most of my training was about emergency and survival. So, you know, when you come down on the Soyuz, sometimes you miss your mark and you don't know if you're going to land in the ocean or you're going to land in the middle of Siberia. You have no idea. One little mistake and you're halfway across the world. So you have to learn how to survive for, you know, at least a day in case they can't find you. So one of those, if you land in the forest, is learning how to build shelter, make a fire, find food, what things are edible and not edible. That was a good, I would say, two-week training right there. I felt like I was back in the Boy Scouts, <laughs> which was fun. And then the other survival training was they drop you in your Soyuz capsule into a huge Olympic-sized pool. And you have to, in a certain amount of time as you're sinking, get out of your scaphander, your flight suit, uh, which is very hard because you have all these bundles and your clothes and everything just kind of pressed up against you. Your whole body is numb because your knees are in your chest. So then they drop you in this water and you have to get out in a certain amount of time. And it takes a while to get out of that spacesuit. And the first time they did it, I did it in a good amount of time. So I was very happy. They were happy. I got out safe and I was able to move on to the next emergency training. Mm. You also flew a fighter plane? 
Yeah, that was <laughs> flying the uh, Russian MiG was like that was one of the first days in Russia. And this was kind of my first, I don't know, look at what it was like to be a Russian cosmonaut. They took me to this field where they had these fighter jets and I didn't know what we were doing, but every cosmonaut has kind of a mentor cosmonaut. Mm -hmm. And so my mentor cosmonaut took me there and we first go to this airfield and we have a nice little lunch with some sandwiches and lots of vodka. And I did come to find out that the vodka thing is real in Russia. They drink it all day long. They do it to celebrate. They do it to, oh, we finished the class. Great. Oh, yeah. And they do it straight. So, you know, I'm having a couple of vodka shots and I'm feeling really good. And he's like, okay, let's go fly. I'm like, what? You're like, I thought we were having a picnic. Oh, no. So, you know, we're pretty drunk and my commander's drunk. And he's like, all right. So we take out a little flight plan and we're kind of drawing what we're going to do. And I'm like, okay, this is great. Like, I've never flown in anything like this. And obviously, I have an amazing pilot. So let's do this. So we get in, we, you know, take off. And then I realize that, no, he wants me to do the flight path. <laughs> I've never... I've never flown a plane before. You know, he does it first and we're doing circles and flips. It's everything you see in Top Gun. And now I realize he's probably seeing how I can handle this mm -hmm. to see how I would freak out if I was calm enough to do this. And I was. I, I was not worried at all. Never dawned on me that this could be dangerous at all because I thought I was in great hands, which I was. But then when I took over, it was amazing. I mean, I was doing all these flips. And, you know, you see in the movie where they go all the way up, then they cut the engine, and then you fall down, and then they cut it back on, and then just pull it up right above the tree line. We were doing all of that. And it was amazing. Absolutely amazing. But then you realize, wait a minute, he's drunk. <laughs> <laughs> this, guy's, this guy is drunk. So, you know, I definitely, you know, I knew the lever that I needed to pull in case I needed to eject out of that thing. Let's just say that. So you're getting closer and closer to that October launch date. It's going to be you and two other cosmonauts packed into this tiny Soyuz capsule. And you were set to spend 10 days in space at the International Space Station. Yeah. What was your role on the mission going to be? Although I was a quote-unquote space tourist, it wasn't tourism like we think today. You know, where you go up, you float around, you come back. Every cosmonaut on the Soyuz has a job because there's no room for anything else. So me being in the left seat, I could reach buttons that they couldn't reach. So mm. I was in charge of a lot of things that could easily ruin the mission or kill my crew members. So you had to take it very, very seriously. And I can understand coming from their view, if you thought that, oh, my God, a freaking pop star that's dumb as hell, like is now in charge of my oxygen like that, that can't feel very safe. Was that your job to be the oxygen guy? Yeah, yeah. So uh, part of my job was making sure that the oxygen was working right. Mm -hmm. You know, that was a lot to put on your shoulders because that's very, very important. <laughs> oxygen is very important for a mission like that. But I think once we had trained together, they saw how serious I was about all of this. And, and I learned very quickly. What was that like for you kind of knowing that all these people underestimated you. You know, they were they were kind of going like, ah, this guy, we got to go with this. Like, how, how did that feel? <laughs> it didn't feel much different from my real life. I've always been underestimated my entire life. I was always the shortest kid. I was always like the low totem pole person. So I always loved proving people wrong. And I got that a lot with NSYNC. When we came out, we were so underestimated and made fun of and no one took us seriously. And we just had to prove ourselves by being who we were. Mm-hmm. I want to shift gears a little bit. Um, at this point, 2002, 
You were not out of the closet yet. Mm-hmm. You were hiding your sexuality even in the States. Yeah. And now here you are in Russia where attitudes are, you know, a lot more conservative oh, yeah. and where being gay could be potentially quite dangerous. Mm-hmm. And to dial back a little bit, I want to talk about an experience that you had before the training began as part mm-hmm. of the medical tests. Yeah. You flew to Russia and you had to have a colonoscopy. What happened? How did that go? Yeah, that was a an eye-opening moment. You know, I'd, I'd been used to hide myself my whole life, right? I mean, being gay in the States still was not accepted very well, even in 2002. So my whole life, since I was five, I knew I was gay and I knew I had to hide it. And very conflicted because I grew up very religious. So I always thought there was something wrong with me and, you know, I would never act on it. But when I went to Russia, it didn't even, I didn't even think about that because I'd already been living such a a hidden life that I was an expert at it. So there was no way they were going to figure it out. But when I get there and it's medical training towards the end, you have to do a, a colonoscopy. And I, I didn't even know I was going in for this procedure because they didn't tell you anything. So they did the colonoscopy in front of many people. My dad was there, zero sedation. You just kind of laid down, went to your side and they did it. And it hurt so much. You know, they were pumping the air into your stomach and it felt like there was someone like with a knife trying to stab outside, you know, to get out of your stomach. And I had some tears going down my face because it was just, it hurt so badly. And they were just laughing. Like the, the doctors were laughing. My translator was laughing. <laughs> and I'm looking at my dad. I'm like, so what's funny? And then finally someone's like, oh, they're like, well, we now know that you're not gay. Mm. And I was like, oh, okay. And it was just such a joke, right? And and I'd heard several things throughout my training about gay people, right, and making fun of gay people because it was such a macho atmosphere in this cosmonaut training. And you just kind of had to laugh along with them. But I, I knew then, like, whoa, I, I need to really watch what I say. So I was very quiet the rest of, of that training. <laughs> I mean, that, that sounds awful. And it gives you kind of some insight into how pervasive and casual homophobia was in Russia. I mean, and is even more so probably today. But did that experience with the colonoscopy, did that put you off going? Did it make you reconsider? No, it never made me reconsider. Mm-hmm. I just thought, I mean, that's that's just part of it. And that's just what you had to do. You had to sacrifice a lot. And I was I was ready for that sacrifice. Mm-hmm. And so this this obviously happened before before the training, before you moved to Russia. Right. Once you once you'd arrived, once you were living in Russia, how much was the kind of homophobia and hiding your sexuality? How much was that part of your day to day? How much were you thinking about that? You know, it definitely ran through my mind every day I was there. I, in fact, had been, you know, it was the first time that I had met someone. So I had already kind of started talking to someone and having a little relationship. So this is the first time I'd ever acted on something like this. And I knew that couldn't be found out. And I thought, okay, can't call this guy, can't email this guy, nothing. As long as I'm there, there's no way I can communicate because they're going to be watching what I write and listening to every phone call that I have. But other than that, I I didn't feel in danger at all because, one, I was stuck on a military base, so there's no way they were going to find out that I was gay. I didn't have any information out there that you could find to to confirm that. And throughout the training, you know, it's just – it's a boys' club. It really is. At the end of certain classes and you have like an hour, you would go sit in – the big sauna where they kind of take branches and kind of beat each other with and you're drinking vodka and it's just kind of this 
It's a, it's a bonding time with your crew, with your professors. It's just a time that the boys bond. And in those bonding times, people are telling jokes and stories and laughing. And, and a lot of the times, the butt of the joke would be being gay. You know, and I, I would just have to laugh along with it. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and I'm back for another season of my podcast, Climbing in Heels. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as fully obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. My podcast, Climbing in Heels, is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season, we're taking things up a notch. I'll be talking to some incredible women across so many industries, from models and beauty industry stars to doctors, entrepreneurs, and TV personalities. Climbing in Heels is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Every week, listeners will be able to ask me any questions. I'm answering it all. My life is absolutely crazy with so much going on, and I'm so beyond excited to bring you along for the ride. Whether we're talking red carpet looks, current trends, or products I'm obsessed with, I'm here to be your fashion fairy godmother. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. So, Lance, you're in the middle of this very hectic training schedule. You're you're hyper-focused. You're eating too many cucumbers than you'd like to be eating. But kind of in the background of all of this, there are some financial issues with the project. Mm-hmm. What was going on behind the scenes? What was going on behind the scenes is still somewhat a mystery to me because I don't know how much truth I was being told. But what I... From my view, this is what happened. So I went there with this company that wanted to, you know, send the youngest person to space. And it was going to be a part of this television show called Mission Space. And they wanted their host, which I was going to host the show, to have gone through the training and gone to space because the winner of the show does the exact same thing. Goes into Russian training and gets sent off to the ISS. And it was going to be a CBS show in America. And then that's when they shipped me to Russia and I just started training and, again, cut off from the world. So I was, you know, I was doing the cosmonaut thing, but entertainment, they were doing their own thing. And I guess Russia and Hollywood don't really 
get along because Russia is all about the contract. You know, it's like this is how it is and this is how it's going to go. And, you know, Hollywood can be just very wishy-washy and shady. And I think that's what went down because Alexander Derechin, who was the head of Energia, which is, you know, their Boeing and basically runs the Russian space agency, brought me into his office and he said, look, your name is not in this contract at all with CBS or anything. And that was the first time I'm like, what? Well, then why am I here then? And I just, I still couldn't figure out why they would send me there knowing that they were going to sandbag my flight anyway. But it pissed off Energia so much that they ripped the contract up and said, we're not working with y'all. And that's when they kicked me out. Uh, my first time they kicked me out of the training facility and I had to go to Moscow. So you got kicked out and you just went to Moscow. Yeah. Yeah, I had to I had to sit in Moscow for a weekend until they figured something out because they ripped the contract out and there was no reason I should be there because without that contract, no one was paying for me to be there. I mean, I was pissed. I was pissed at my agents. I was pissed at CBS. I mean, I'm here in good faith doing this and putting my ass on the line, being tortured every day. And here you are kind of like playing with my life. Yeah. And again, I don't know exactly what went down, but all I know is that part of the mission was canceled. It was done. And there was no TV show that I was hosting and all that. But immediately MTV popped on board and they knew it. we'd already been shooting some stuff. So they're like, well, we'll just do an MTV doc on this because it's still the youngest person to go to space. It's a musician. So they kind of picked it up immediately. And we just continued that next week. And they were on the line to pay for this. But then I went in for a few more months, finishing the training. And then it was... Uh, I guess, September, right before my launch, or maybe early October. And apparently they couldn't get the funding they needed right before the mission because no one would cover a cosmonaut with insurance. That's crazy that that wasn't sorted out before all of yeah, this think? training. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, no one would fund a mission that can't be insured. No production can go ahead without it being insured. So that was the reasoning they said, we can't go further because we can't insure you. And that was two or three weeks before my launch. And that's when I found out that my mission was canceled because of insurance. And it broke my heart. You know, I couldn't believe that I was two weeks short of getting my certification. Mm -hmm. I had gone this far. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, I did the, all this for nothing. Yeah. But how did it feel for you, like— the moment you found out it definitely wasn't happening. It was a dark moment in my life. You know, it was very depressing. And I feel like I feel like I still have a lot of depression over it because you work so hard on something. And and just because of, you know, a couple of stupid people, it's just kind of pulled away from you and they don't even care. They're like, oh, well, that's not my problem anymore. Next. You just kind of felt thrown away. But then Russia said, well, if you want to finish the course, which is two more weeks, We'll let you finish it so you can get certified so that you can go in case you can work this out in the future. You know, you can finish out this training, but you'd have to pay a million dollars. A million dollars. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So I had to decide if I was going to pay a million dollars out of my own pocket to finish the damn two weeks training just so I can be certified just in case I want to use it to fly to space in the future. And I did. And I'm glad I did. I mean, it, it sucked, but I needed that certification. You know, I, I, I had to leave there with something positive. But yeah, a million dollars to finish two weeks was a lot. But, you know, I cherish that certificate. <laughs> Maybe I will go one day. What was it like for you to go back to the U.S. after all of that training? I had so many emotions about it. One, I couldn't wait to get back to my home, my own bed. 
my family, you know, my friends, you know, that excited me. I needed that normalcy again. But then the other side of me was embarrassed, embarrassed that I wasn't able to finish this mission that I was so excited about, that I had completely stopped my life for, that I felt I stopped my whole business for. Once I got back to America, that's when I saw all the press about it. As long as I was in Russia, I didn't see the news. I didn't have a TV. I didn't read the papers. So I didn't know it was such a big deal, me being over there in such a news story. So I started seeing all the, the news stories about like how it was a PR stunt and then I wasn't really over there. And then I get kicked out of Star City and I mean, just really making me look like an idiot. So you know, going back to that kind of darkness and it was a very confusing time, but it was life changing. How had how had you changed kind of physically and emotionally after the training? How had it changed you? I think it changed me a lot. I had the best time. I would do it all over again, but I definitely came back a little, I don't know, just scared, I guess. I I don't know what it was, but I definitely had changed. I, I got quieter and I was already a quiet guy, but I felt like I really kind of stood back and like, okay, everyone's really kind of judging me at all times, watching me at all times. Like I just felt like the Russians were always watching. How do you how do you feel now when you look back at those crazy six months in Russia? I think it is one of the best times I've ever had in my life. Also, one of the most uh, devastating times of my life. Every emotion comes out. It was just no one will understand it. No one unless you went through it. You just don't get it. You don't get the pressure that was on you. You're raised thinking about a country a certain way with all the relations between both countries. You're Team America, right? And (laughs) the Russians were the bad guys for so long. But when you're there and you work with these guys, it was amazing to see all these countries working together. And all the bullshit that I had always heard just kind of washed away, you know, and I, I started understanding the Russians much better and how they looked at everything and their beliefs and to see how everyone really worked together and was such a team was a beautiful thing. Space really brought so many people together. So Putin invaded Ukraine last February. Mm -hmm. Relations between the West and Russia are at their lowest since the Cold War. At this point, do you think you'll ever go back? Would, Would you like to? I would love to go back to Russia. I would love to finally get on a a mission, Soyuz mission, so I could go and uh, train a little bit more for that. See a lot of, I'm sure there's so many of the same people still working there. It was a special place for me, and I was was so young, so I feel very connected to Star City and, and everyone I worked with. I hope relations get better. A lot of people that know that I'm doing The Last Soviet are like, are you sure this is the right time to, you know, do a Russian story? I'm like, well, this is the best time to do it. It shows you a slice of life from Russia and and especially a time period where communism was falling. It's the perfect time to relive that and study that and educate yourself because what's going on now is not too different from what is going on back then. Mm. And do you think you'll still go to space someday? I don't know if I'll ever end up in space, but I pray that I do. I really do. I just think it's one of those things that, you know, if I could cross that off the list, I would feel very accomplished. You know, I I spent a lot of time training and putting myself through a lot of misery to, you know, to get to the point where I could actually go. And I and coming so close, you just taste it. I won't be fulfilled unless I'm able to make it. It would be nice to just make it to space, fine. But my goal, I want to live on the ISS. 
I want my 10 days up there. I want to do my studies. You know, I don't want to just go up there and play around and float around and, ooh, this is fun. Take some selfies, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I just, I want to do something important and I want to, you know, take it seriously. And so my hopes are still there that one day Mm -hmm. this will happen. I can't believe it's been over 20 years since those crazy six months, and I still can't get them out of my head. I mean, space just got under my skin and stayed there. No matter what I get up to in life or where I go, I can't shake its siren call. I mean, here I am hosting a whole podcast about it. And on that, we're going to leave my story for a bit now. And we're back next week with Sergey's. So I'll talk to you then. The Last Soviet is a Kaleidoscope production in partnership with iHeart Podcast and Exile Media. Produced by Samizdat Audio. And hosted by me, Lance Bass. Executive produced by Kate Osborne and Mangesh Hadakador. With Oz Woloshin and Kostas Linos. From iHeart, executive produced by Katrina Norvell and Nikki Ettore. From Samizdat Audio, our executive producers are Joe Sykes and Dasha Lisitsina. Produced by Asia Fuchs, Dasha Litsitsinia, and Joe Sykes. Writing by Lydia Marchant. Research by Mika Golubowski and Molly Schwartz. Music by Will Epstein. Theme by Martin Orstrick. Mixing and sound design by Richard Ward. And special thanks to Nando Villa, Alyssa Pollock, Will Pearson, Connell Byrne, Bob Pittman, and Isaac Lee. If you want to hear more shows like this, Nothing is more important to the creators here at Kaleidoscope than subscribers, ratings, and reviews. So please spread the love wherever you listen. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Oh, hi. I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. 
And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.